0: I invite you, brothers and sisters, to please take your Bibles and turn with me for our Scripture reading for our sermon text today. We're going to be in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll read together verses 26 through to verse 40, the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40. I ask you if you'll please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's holy, inspired word for us, His people. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue... Let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church, and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent." For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says." If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized." So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we do ask that you would now send your Holy Spirit from heaven to do what only he can do, which is to take your holy truth from these inspired words and to write that truth upon our hearts and to stamp it upon our lives and to use it to illumine our minds and change our minds so that we are conformed from the inside out to be more like your son, Jesus. We ask that you would glorify your word and lift high your name, speak to us, and we will not be the same. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we continue our study together on biblical, reformed worship. What I want to do to begin is to try to tie together some of the threads we've seen in this series so far. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've gotten a little bit theoretical in terms of the regulative principle and different categories and how it all fits together and how it works. What I want to do is to maybe simplify in a summary way what we've seen over the last couple of weeks and tie some things together as we move into this next segment of our series. In the last two weeks, we have taken a deep dive into the regulative principle of worship. And as I hope you all know by now, the regulative principle states that God alone gets to tell us how we should worship him, and he has done so in his word, which means all worship must be according to scripture. God wants us to practice word worship, not will worship The regulative principle is easy enough to define and to prove from the Bible, as I hope we've done so far in this series. So you might be asking, okay, if it's easy enough to define and to show where it is in the Bible, why this deep dive the last two weeks? Why have we gotten more theoretical, perhaps, than usual? It's because the regulative principle gets complicated when we try to apply it. It gets complicated because the Bible does not answer all our worship questions directly and explicitly. Nor does it tell us what to do with exhaustive detail. Unlike the Old Testament. The Old Testament, go back and read, uh, for example, in the book of Leviticus. And just look at the detailed specificity for how to do the sacrificial style worship under the Old Covenant. I mean, the, the, the priests had a very complicated, very intricate ste- set of steps and directions they had to follow. And if you mess it up on one, the whole process is ruined. It's very, very particular. And the New Covenant, it's just there's not anything like that kind of detail. And that makes the regulative principle a bit less straightforward and a bit more complex in how... We apply it. Some things are very explicit and clear, no questions asked. Other things are more general. So the regulative principle, based on the biblical data God has given us, has a built-in spectrum from fixed worship to free worship. Some things in worship are very fixed. Others are very free. But all things must be biblical, must be according to Scripture. So applying the regulative principle gets complicated. And in order to help us navigate this spectrum from fixed worship to free, we have developed over the last couple of weeks three categories of things that we do in worship from the most fixed to the most free. Last week, we looked at the first of these three categories called the elements of worship. In simple terms, the elements of worship are the specific acts of worship that God directly commands us to do. The elements of worship are the specific acts of worship that God directly commands us to do. So the elements are most fixed because they're commanded directly. They're the most fixed. We cannot add to them and we cannot subtract from them. Deuteronomy 12, 32. Do not add to nor take away from God's worship. Which means we are not allowed to command anything that God has not commanded. I don't get to tell anybody that it's a sin if you don't do this in worship if God doesn't say it's a sin. I can't command and bind your conscience to something before God if God has left that matter free. Jesus alone is Lord of your soul and of your mind, and of your conscience. So the church cannot command things as though they're divine commands unless it's in the Scriptures. Now, our Westminster Confession of Faith sorts these elements into two groups, ordinary and occasional. Ordinary elements and occasional elements, and this is what we looked at last week. The ordinary elements are the most important to God. They're the most important to God. These are the central, the central acts of worship, the primary acts of worship that ought to be part of our regular worship practice, our regular rotation of worship. These five should be the normal things, the ordinary things that characterize that. As we saw last week, there are five of these. Prayer, reading Scripture, preaching Scripture... Singing and celebrating the sacraments, especially the Lord's Prayer. Excuse me, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Those are the ordinary elements. Other group is the occasional elements. And the occasional elements are of less importance, but God does permit us to do them, and God wants us to do them on occasion at the very least. We can do them every week if we want because it's free. We're free to do the occasional elements every Sunday if we want to, but we are not required to do so. It is sufficient if we do them at least occasionally. Ordinary, occasional. This week, we will look at the other two categories the categories that are more free in terms of their biblical requirements and the specificity that Scripture gives for how to do them. These are, as I've said in the past, just a reminder, these are the forms and the circumstances of worship. This is where the application of the regulative principle gets most complicated and where great biblical wisdom is needed. How do we apply biblical standards to the questions and issues raised by these categories of forms and circumstances? In other words, how can free worship still be under the control of the Scriptures and according to Scripture's requirements? Because if it's free, that means we have some freedom, some leeway to come up with this stuff on our own, but that still has to be biblical. How? How do you do that? How do we make sure that free worship is still word worship and doesn't descend and decline into will worship, the kind of worship God will not accept? You see the problem that we're trying to address today. In our passage this morning, Paul gives us some tremendous help ...in answering these questions by instructing the Corinthians... ...in how to make their own worship more pleasing to God... ...and more beneficial for themselves. Now before we get to our passage... ...and see the tremendous help Paul gives us... ...before we get there... ...I want to make two preliminary points... ...about the relation between Scripture... ...and the forms and circumstances of worship... ...as a kind of preface to what we're going to see Paul doing in 1 Corinthians 14. So first, a preliminary point about Scripture and tradition in worship. This is number one on your sermon insert. A preliminary point about Scripture and tradition in worship. Forms and circumstances are about how we do the elements of worship, as well as when and where and in what order and who does what and why. The elements of worship, those, remember, are the acts of worship, the specific actions we ought to be doing in a worship service. The elements are the acts of worship. The forms and the circumstances are the ceremonies of worship that we craft and come up with for performing those acts in worship. So God says, there should be preaching. Okay, how do we do that? How should we preach? What should we preach? Where should I stand? Ooh, how many sermons should be in one service? There's no no commandment that says, "'Thou shalt preach one sermon.'" You're getting nervous, aren't you? <laughs> and there's no, there's no law that says it has to be after the special music. So why don't we do it before the special music? Why don't we take up the offering first? Why don't, why don't we do the benediction second? You see what I'm saying? Like there's a hundred questions about... Why are we doing these things in this particular order? And who gets to do those things and how long should they do them? And how frequently in one service should they do them? Is it okay if I'm using amplification system to do that? Is it okay if I'm standing behind a pulpit? Are we supposed to have a pulpit? Can I stand here for the whole service on the edge? Is that okay? You see, there's a hundred, there's ten thousand tiny little details no one thinks about that goes into how we do worship. And forms and elements are the two categories for how we think about those things. And as we craft how we're going to do the forms and how we're going to do the circumstances and we work those details out, that is the, those are the ceremonies that we do in a worship service. Or the rituals or the order of service, there's a hundred names for it, but how we do all those things are the ceremonies surrounding how we perform those central acts. Now, over the years, these ceremonies become firmly established in a church or in a denomination or in a culture. And that becomes a tradition. A set way of doing things that we all know, accept, and participate in. That's a tradition. Now, whether it's Whether it's formal or informal, high church or low church, and anywhere in between, no matter where you are on that spectrum, it's still a tradition. This is how we do it. That's your tradition. Your set way of doing the ceremonies of worship. For example, some churches have all the prayers written out verbatim, and others don't know what they'll say until they hear themselves saying it. Some churches kneel during communion. Some preach only from a lectionary reading for that Sunday. Others preach verse by verse through whole books of the Bible start to finish. And when they finish one book, they start the next one. Some preach topical. Some do a series. Some do no series at all. It's just one week is disconnected from the next. And there's there's all sorts of different styles of preaching... Some churches have no instruments in worship. No, they sing, but there's no instrumentation whatsoever. It's just your voices, a cappella singing. Some churches only sing the psalms. No hymn books, no contemporary music, nothing but the psalms. Some churches do the sign of the cross at different points in the service. And some clergy... I heard one, one, one uh, priest, an Episcopal priest said, how someone in his church said, how do I know when I'm supposed to... And he said, well, think of it like, like, if, we're, like if we're playing catch with baseball. If I throw it, you catch it. I <laughs> thought that was pretty cool. Some churches do that, right? Throw the sign, do the sign. Some churches start at eleven. You got to decide. Sometime you're going to start. Some churches start at eight thirty. Some have two services. Some have three services. Some do multiple campuses. Some have, some if their churches are too big. I'll be here, and then our other campus will have a video of me. Or, you know, there's a hundred different ways to do things. Some clergy wear vestments. Some are in a suit. Some sit on bar stools and swing their feet in polos and khakis. Who's to say? <laughs> There's 10,000 different things you have to decide about church. And these things, all these things, are traditional forms and circumstances that have developed over the years in different churches, different denominations, different time periods in the church, in the ancient church, in the year, you know, 315. They weren't doing church identically to the way they were doing it in 1315. And we're not doing it the same way they were doing it then. For example, in St. Augustine's church in the, in the late 300s, early 400s, he sat during the preaching and everyone else stood. You want to try it? No, no. <laughs> no, you don't. But that's how they did it. Is that okay? Is that biblical? Who knows? Since these specific details are not commanded by God, you won't find a verse that says do or don't, on these very specific questions. Since they're not commanded by God, they're left free for the various churches to decide, which means God has delegated authority to local churches and to presbyteries, etc. He's delegated authority to the church, to the government of the church, to craft its own ceremonies and develop its own traditions and worship. At the same time, however, we are not free to just do anything we want. This is not an unlimited freedom that God has delegated to us. Our traditions must still be subordinate to Scripture and according to Scripture. In other words, guys, we ought to have biblical traditions. Biblical traditions. Traditions. That's what the regulative principle says. So now we're just back to our problem. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, recall two weeks ago that Jesus taught... Jesus taught us in Matthew 15 that human traditions are acceptable to God so long as they meet two conditions. Number one, they cannot contradict Scripture... And number two, they can never compete with Scripture's authority. Never take our traditions that we thought up and say that is equal to the Ten Commandments. It has divine authority behind it, like God said it in the Bible. Don't treat your traditions like, if you don't do it our way, you're sinning. You have sinful worship and we have righteous worship. Okay? Our traditions, our forms and circumstances cannot reach the level of Scripture. They also can't contradict anything Scripture says. So, Jesus gave us those two principles in Matthew 15. Human traditions are acceptable to God so long as they do not contradict Scripture and they do not pretend to compete with Scripture's authority. However, the regulative principle from our own Reformed tradition... Insists that a further criterion is needed, a third condition is needed to satisfy the requirements for being a biblical tradition in worship. Not only must the traditions of our forms and circumstances, our ceremonies, not only must those traditions not contradict Scripture and not compete with Scripture, but third, they must also conform to positive, biblical sanctions and standards. What do I mean? Well, think about the first two conditions. Do not contradict Scripture and do not compete with Scripture. Those are both negative. Right? Don't contradict the Bible. Don't compete with the Bible. Negative. So, you could hear some... You could think of someone say, and people do this, they think, well as long as the Bible doesn't say we can't do it, then it doesn't contradict Scripture. So we can do it. Now that, sometimes slippery slope arguments are a fallacy of reasoning. Here it's not, because just look at, look around us. Well, the Bible doesn't say I can't use a beach ball in church, so I will. The Bible doesn't say I can't decorate the platform to look like the beach, and we can have a you know, Jimmy Buffett worship. right? We'll, we'll even worship at five o'clock. It's five o'clock somewhere. The Bible doesn't contradict that, right? You'll, you won't find one verse about beach balls in, in, in church in the Bible. So you have to be careful with this. It's because it's, it's purely negative. As long as the Bible doesn't say we can't, that must mean we can. Very careful with that. The regulative principle is very suspicious of us sinners. (laughs) The Reformed tradition is very suspicious of sinful men. And rightly so. Because we believe in total depravity. And that means us. We'll think unbiblical things are a good idea all the time. We need... A third condition. And that third condition is, it's not just it can't contradict Scripture. It's not just it can't compete with Scripture. The third condition is, we need some positive biblical warrant to do something. Positive biblical warrant. We need to conform to positive, stated standards and sanctions in the Bible. We need some evidence from Scripture that our traditions have divine approval. This brings me to my second preliminary point. What kinds of evidence should we look for in order to determine if our worship traditions conform to positive biblical sanctions and standards? Well, the Reformed tradition helps us out because our forefathers in the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, stream of Christianity, has done a lot of hard thinking about these things, so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can look to our wise, godly forefathers in the faith, Scottish Presbyterians, English Puritans, colonial and early American Calvinists. We can get a lot of help. So here are three things we can look for in the Bible. And we won't go into detail. I just want to tell you what they are. Three things we can look for in the Bible to help us to find some positive warrant for doing the things we do. We can look for these three things. Biblical expectations, examples, and emphases. Expectations, examples, and emphases ...that are stated in the Bible. So just a word about each of these. Expectations. These would be rules. Biblical rules and guidelines and directions... ...for how to approach worship. We've already seen some of these. Remember back in our first sermon in this series. John chapter 4. Jesus tells the woman at the well... ...the Father is looking for people who will worship Him... ...in spirit and in truth. Well, there's a rule... Our worship has to be in spirit and in truth. Rule number two, it can't be tied to a local place. As though this building or this spot on earth is more holy or closer to God. Because Jesus says in John 4, Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will people worship the Father. In other words, it's not tied down to a place. Either in Samaria or Israel. I know we still call it the Holy Land. That's sort of traditional language. But we shouldn't imagine that if you travel to Israel, you're closer to God. Now, it's cool to walk where Jesus walked. And that does sort of give it kind of a sacredness. But don't think that, well, my worship is more acceptable there than it is right here in little old Glenmore. It's not true. Jesus himself said that in the Holy Land. He says, don't think of this land that way any longer. So there's... Another, uh, another example was from a few some, some, uh, excuse me a few Sundays ago when we looked at Hebrews 12, where it said, let us worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. So our worship, there's a rule. Whatever we do in worship, it's got to be in spirit and in truth. We've got to think about what that means. And then number two, it's got to be reverence. And it's got to have some of the fear of the Lord in it. Reverence and awe. Act like we're approaching the God of the universe for crying out loud. That's what it's saying. So there's some there's some rules. Those are biblical expectations. When you come to worship. Don't act like you just go into a baseball game. Act, act like you understand where you are. And who it is you're appearing before. You wouldn't act like that if you were going to see the president. Or the governor. Or whatever politician you respect. You wouldn't act like that. You wouldn't walk in and go put her there. <laughs> right? Knowing where you are. Uh, now the second one. Expectations. Second is examples. Examples. These are the precedents and the patterns that we see in Scripture. How do, the, how do Christians in the New Testament worship? And if they're doing things in worship, and it's clear from the context that this isn't a condemnation, that God approves of this, that it's being recorded approvingly, then well, if it's okay for the apostles to do it in worship, that must mean it's okay for us to do it too. And so you go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and you see, wow, what were they doing first thing right after Pentecost? They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to learning their teachings. They devoted themselves to fellowship, that's they invested in the life of the community and participated in the body, serving and giving and helping and praying and worshiping and Growing together and learning together and loving each other. All the fellowship stuff, all the one and others. They did all that. Third, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. That's a reference in the New Testament to participating in the Lord's Supper, which was a full meal, not just a sip and a, and a cracker, which is how we do it now. But they did that as part of a full meal. So they gave themselves to that. And they devoted themselves to prayer. That was an early worship service. Very simple, Very straightforward. That's how the apostles conducted worship the day after Pentecost, as it were, in Acts 2. Or you can look for a model, a pattern. You can say, how did the Israelites worship at the foot of Mount Sinai when God gave them the law, Exodus 19 through 24, chapters 19 to 24. And you can say, here's a pattern of worship. Sometimes when Reformed churches take this as a model, they call it covenant renewal worship because God enters a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And so they say, look, well, we're renewing our covenant values and commitments to God each Sunday. So let's find a covenant renewal ceremony in the Bible and let's use that as a pattern. You could look for a precedent or a pattern. You can look for examples. Third is, well, one more is Revelation 4. Revelation 4 is a whole worship service in heaven. Well, if, if that's how they worship in heaven, we can do some of that down here. Different, different places you can look in Scripture to find a, a precedent or a pattern. And it's an example, not a command, which means, oh, well, if that's how they did it, we have to do it that way. Well, you don't have to do it that way unless God says, the way they did it, do it that way forever. It's just an example, something we can follow. Third is emphases, and these are... Does Scripture say anything to give priority to some things over others? What does the Bible want us to emphasize in worship? What priorities in worship should we, should we look for? What are the values that the apostles had in worship? Like reverence and awe is an expectation, but that also helps us understand some emphatic things... Like in 2 Timothy uh, 4, where Paul says, I charge you, Timothy, by, the, by God the Father and God the Son and the first coming and the second coming and all that is holy, preach the word. I mean, he, he really wants Timothy to feel the importance, the weight, the emphasis on preaching. And he doesn't talk that way about other things. Preaching gets a big emphasis. And there are other things we could... We, other, we can explore these further, but that's just a nice little summary. What kind of evidence can we look for to base our traditions on the Bible? We can look for biblical expectations, rules and guidelines and directions. We can look for examples in Scripture, patterns and precedents. And third, we can look for emphases, the priorities and the values we see expressed in the Bible. Okay, preliminary observations over. We come now, at last to our text in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul lays down his expectations for worship. Paul gives his expectations, that first category of evidence, here in 1 Corinthians 14. He gives five rules for worship, and he stresses... In verses 37 and 38 of our passage, that these are divine sanctions and standards for worship. Look at 37 and 38. Paul says, if anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, like full of the Holy Spirit. If anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Now that's why these are expectations, Because God commands us to follow certain rules. These are not actions. These are how we should perform the actions. In other words, this applies to our ceremonies, to our traditions. It's an expectation, a biblical expectation for our traditions. How do we make our traditions based on the Bible? Follow these expectations. These are guidelines that help us craft our ceremonies in a biblical and obedient way If anybody is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Oof. That means you don't follow this in worship, you're disqualified. We don't want to have disqualified worship. So these are binding sanctions and standards for how we should craft our traditions and our ceremonies. Okay, now, we could study these in detail, and I'd love to do that. But it would require a whole nother week. So, what I want to do today is not deep dive, I want to just survey. I want to highlight these five rules and just say a few words of application rather than going too in depth on each one. Here are Paul's five rules for worship. The first one is in verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. Look at verse 26. Paul says to these Corinthians, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. In other words, everybody wants to participate, and you're all trying to do everything every Sunday. Chill out. It's chaos. That's the problem in Corinth with their worship chaotic worship he says everybody has a hymn well let's sing number 212 I want to sing number four well man why don't we sing 13 again one more time right everybody has their hymn they want to sing why ain't we singing my hymn everybody has a lesson right so everybody wants to wants to preach (laughs) everybody wants to share each prophet has a revelation. Oh, the Lord's telling me. Oh, no, the Lord's telling me. Can I say my part? Well, I'm trying to talk. And there, everybody, has a, everybody has a revelation. Everybody's trying to talk in tongues. And then there's this other group that's trying to interpret the tongue speakers. And they're all doing it at once. And no one can understand anything. That's what's happening in Corinth. And he says, listen. Let all things be done for building In other words, let all things be done for edification. Your traditions need to be edifying. It shouldn't be a cacophony of noise and confusion and distraction. But whatever you do in worship, it needs to be designed to edify the congregation. To build people up. It needs to be designed for your sanctification. It needs to be designed in a way that you're a little bit more Holy, when you leave than when you came in the door. You grew an inch spiritually or a half inch or whatever. But there's a design here that you're going to grow. That you're going to get spiritually fed. Our traditions ought to feed us spiritually. Paul says, listen, let all things be done in a way that builds up and edifies the body. And then he gives some... And then he says, listen, if, in verse 27, if any if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. In other words, if you've got 50 tongue speakers, you can't all do it every Sunday. I'm sorry, there's a sign-up sheet, two or three at most, and we'll get to you next time. Okay? Let there be only two or at most three. Can you hear Paul's frustration? Okay, two of you and maybe a third And each in turn, not all at the same time, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church. Tongue speakers, shh, hush, unless you have an interpreter. Otherwise, Paul says, verse 29... Uh, or no, Verse 28, let each of them keep silent and speak to himself and to God. If you want to speak in tongues, but there's no one there to interpret, mumble it to yourself. You're still worshiping God, but don't distract the congregation. With, an, with words, no one knows what they mean. Why? Because that doesn't edify anybody. If you're speaking in tongues and nobody knows what you're saying, then we're just going to sit there like, can you hush? I don't speak whatever that is you're speaking. And there's no edification. It's just confusing. She's so like, can we get to the next person who's, who speaks my language, please? That's what Paul's having to deal with here. Let it be done for edification. Same thing with the prophets. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So you got 50 prophets, 50 people want to preach. Well, let two or at most three. You see what he's saying? He's allowing you to preach two or three sermons. Yes. <laughs> Woohoo. Aren't you glad I'm not exercising my biblical right? He's saying, look, if you've got these prophets, two or at most three, and each in their turn as well. And the other prophets are able to weigh what is said. Their job is to listen and to weigh what is said. And then, if someone sitting there has a revelation, and he can raise his hand, and then the first one can say, I yield the floor to... Mr. So-and-so, like in Parliament, and he can sit down, and that person can speak, and the next one can resume. He says, Let all things be done for edification. Verse 31, For you can all prophesy one by one, don't preach three sermons at the same time, so that, here's principle number two, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Rule number one, let all things be done for edification, for building up. Rule number two, Let everything be done in a way that everybody has a chance to learn and everybody has a chance to be encouraged. Our traditions should be edifying. They should be informative and instructive. You should learn about your faith based on how we worship. In other words, our worship should reflect our theology. If we believe in a big, sovereign, majestic God, we ought to have big, majestic worship. It should come across that we think we're in the presence of the king of everything. If we believe that, then you ought to learn that just from sitting here and listening and participating. Man, there's a big God in that place. Man, it's not shallow and goofy and... Silly and slapstick. No man, they're in the presence of some big God. I want to know that God. Yes, that God sounds like he can handle my problems. That God sounds like he can fix my sin problem. That's the God I want to. You know, our 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 worship ought to teach something about our theology. There's a there's a Latin there's a Latin statement, a motto, a slogan from the early church that says the law of prayer is the law. Of theology. That the way we pray and the way we worship ought to say something about who we think we're praying to and who we think we're worshiping. There is this second rule that says let everything be done in a way that everybody has a chance to learn and everybody has a chance to be encouraged. You should be meeting not just with a God of untouchable holy majesty that crushes you for your sin. You also need to have this encouragement of the gospel that says, this is all, not just our creator and judge on the last day, this is our almighty savior. We should Our worship should glorify God in his majesty as creator and as redeemer and not get that out of balance. He's creator and redeemer. Everyone should learn and everyone should be encouraged and edified. That's the first two rules. Rule number three is in the first part of verse 33. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Just after he says, listen, all can prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Don't give me this business about, well, the Spirit just moved me and I couldn't hush. (laughs) No. Well, the Spirit got a hold of me, preacher, and I couldn't, I can't. No, 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 no. He says, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. God doesn't give you a mind that is crazed and out of control. A fruit of the spirit is self-control. The more the spirit has control of you, Christian, the more you're in control of yourself. Because the spirit is giving you back your freedom. Freedom of mind, freedom of heart, freedom of soul. So that you're more in possession of yourself because the spirit is more in possession of you. They work together. They're not in competition. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You can sit down. You can control it. And then he says, the third principle, in verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is a God that does not like confusion. He likes peace. Or in this case, we could translate it harmony. Things should be done in a harmonious way, in a non-confusing way. So one of the biblical expectations is our worship is not going to be super-duper complicated and so hard to follow. And, I mean, what am I supposed to say now? Where do I sit? What am I supposed to do? Are we kneeling? Are we standing? Are we up? Are we down? Who's passing what? What am I supposed to? I've been to some churches where it was like a nice service, but, man, I, I stared at my bulletin the whole service, and I'm like, I don't, know what, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn in this extra book we have. Why do we have four books? Why, why? And I didn't know I couldn't follow it. Now, that's partly because I was brand new to it, and everyone who grew up in that said, well, this is, this is easy to follow. What are you talking about? So some of it's a matter of perspective. But in principle, our worship should be simple. Simple. Simplified worship. Easy to follow, not confusing, and it should be harmonious, peaceful. It shouldn't be a running the aisles and craziness, and, you know, I don't know if you've seen the video of the, of the church where the, the guy is doing special music and he's singing about the rapture and he's just giving it his all and every time he got to the chorus the, the men in the church none of the women did it but the men started running the aisles as hard as they could run like ants like if I kicked over an anthill and they always were scurrying and the men are running one guy takes off his coat and throws it on the singer lands drapes it over him while he, right in the middle of the verse and he takes it off and then another guy comes running and he jumps onto the platform and does a, a wheel Just like rolls head over heels, and then he dove head first into the baptistry, which was full of water. This is on YouTube, I promise you. He jumped into the baptistry, water's splashing, the other pastors are running, the singers, like, what is happening? And they went nuts. None of the ladies did that, it was just the guys. I don't know what was going on there. Confusion. That's not peace, that's nonsense. That's just nonsense. Now, it's a hilarious video. uh, But we don't want to be in that video. (laughs) Right? We don't want to be in that video. He's a God of peace, simplicity, not confusion. God who wants things to be done in a harmonious way. That's the first three. All things be done for building up. Let everybody learn and be encouraged. Three, have peace. Easy to follow, harmonious, peaceful, non-confusing worship. Number four. He says this at the beginning, or the second half of verse 33, and then in verse 36. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, and then he has a section about women in the congregation, and then he continues in verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? See what he's saying? In all the other churches, we do it this way. Now, why do you think the Word of God came from you? Or do you think you're the only people that the Word of God came to? In other words, be mindful of other churches. Don't have this isolationist perspective. Think about what other churches are doing, he says. As in all the churches... We do X, Y, and Z. Why do you do you think that you can just break all that? Because, what you think God's word came from you, or do you think you inspired the Bible? <laughs> do, do you think you're the only people the Bible's come to? No, other churches are trying to apply these principles as well. So it's important, it's wise to for us to look up, look around, and look for. Excellent models and examples of how other biblical churches are also worshiping. This is a, this is biblical warrant to look and see what other traditions are doing and to see what is good, what is excellent, what is biblical, what is solid, and to consider incorporating some of that. And not to say we're going to ignore all the other churches. We're going to ignore all of church history. We are the only people who have God's word. God's word came from us and it came to us and we're it. And so we're just going to get narrow tunnel vision and we're only going to do it the way we think is best. No, there's a wisdom in opening yourself up to other churches and other traditions. And in fact, our... Uh, our Westminster Standards say that we are trying to be fully Reformed according to number one, the Word of God, and number two, the example of excellent Reformed churches. So we want to follow excellence that we see that our other brothers and sisters are doing, not just today, but throughout the ages. There's a wisdom that connects us to the whole church We need to see ourselves as believing what we say in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That means lowercase c, the universal church. Let's be part of the whole body of Christ. And let's look around and see what fits, what makes sense, and is consistent with biblical standards and with our own traditions. Let's be plugged into the whole church. The communion of all the saints, not just ours here. Last example is... Our last expectation, number five, he says in verse 40. He says, all things should be done decently and in order. This is the main thing he wants to say. This is what he ends on. All things should be done decently and in order. Everything should be, that word decently, everything should be fitting. It should be becoming. It should be appropriate, proper, seemly suitable. It should be done orderly, or it should be well arranged, well organized. Decently and in order means our worship should be a proper arrangement with a pleasing appearance. A proper arrangement with a pleasing appearance. Pleasing not just to us, because we like it, but pleasing to God. Everything needs to be done in a decent, orderly fashion. We need to have, as the sermon title suggests, orderly worship. And how do we order our worship? We follow biblical expectations, examples, and emphases. And did you notice there was an emphasis, an emphasis here in verse 39? He says, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. He didn't say earnestly desire to speak in tongues and tolerate prophecy. <laughs> he says, Really, really be passionate for good, sound, solid preaching. Pray for the Spirit to fall on people who can preach. Don't forbid the tongue speakers. I know that they're a problem sometimes. Don't don't forbid them, he says. But really, you should be desiring good preaching. That's an emphasis on prophecy or biblical preaching. So let's wrap it up this way. Too many churches have worship that lacks decency and order. This is true from experience. Too many churches have worship that lacks decency and it lacks order. Worship that fails to conform to biblical sanctions and standards. Brothers and sisters, let us commit as a body here at the Forks, let us commit to orderly worship of Christ, who is our risen, and reigning king, because that's what he's worthy of. Let us commit to following biblical standards in our worship, to make sure everything we do, every area of life and every area of worship conforms to what Jesus wants us to do when we come into his presence. How do we do that? We've got to open up this Bible, and we've got to be relentless in our commitment to doing what this book tells us to do. And when there's still some open questions, we use the principles and wisdom from this book to fill in the gaps. But let us be the church that says, Lord Jesus, you are risen from the dead. You reign over all things. You are our Lord. We want our worship to be pleasing in your sight because you alone are worthy. Let's pray. Father, You are a glorious God, and we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the instruction and the inspiration that comes from Your Word. And we ask that You would help us to take these biblical expectations, these rules and principles, that You would take these five rules that Paul gives us, and all the rest of the wisdom of Scripture that we've seen so far on this topic, and help us to be relentlessly biblical in our worship. Because it's only then, when we have the assurance of Your Word, that we know our worship is pleasing to You. Otherwise, if we're just making it up and it's not based on anything in the Bible, we we don't know, we cannot know for sure that it's the kind of worship you want. Help us to have the, the joy and delight that comes from the assurance that our worship is truly biblical and therefore truly acceptable in your sight because that's what we want. We want to be pleasing to you. We want you to be pleased with what you see and hear and receive from us when we gather together. We want to tell the truth about who our God is. And so we ask that she would help us to do that, and that she would give us great satisfaction and joy in knowing that we are offering truly biblical worship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.